turn with me now in your Bibles to John chapter 8. The two people that are in our congregation may be seated at this time. Because I'm going to set the stage before we start reading this passage. And we're going to work our way through it instead of read it all at once. We're in John chapter 8. That's not about the triumphal entry, but it's a perfect passage for this week. Because the subject is fickle faith. Consider Palm Sunday when Jesus was praised on that Sunday and then was crucified on that Friday. What happened? How joyful could it be? Well, he is worthy to be praised. But the passage in Luke says it's because of the miracles that Jesus had done, they gathered to praise him. Jesus was concerned with fickle faith, and he knew as he came to Jerusalem that he was coming to lay down his life for us. It must have been ominous and amazing for Jesus, knowing what he came to do, to receive the praise that he was worthy of, and yet to realize that the crowds didn't quite get it. There are always the, the few, the disciples, who didn't turn on Jesus on Friday. Peter and the disciples, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, wouldn't have turned on Jesus to demand his crucifixion. There are always those who are against Jesus, who have been plotting uh, to, to kill Jesus from the start. The more they heard him, the more this desire increased, and they were looking for a way to, to kill him. It's that middle crowd, the what's popular in the multitudes that we're concerned with this morning because in John chapter 8 the context for our passage that begins in verse 31 is verse 30 that last verse of the last passage before entering our passage now says even as he spoke many put their faith in him in verse 31 to the Jews who had believed him Jesus said we hear that word faith or belief and we think it's, it's the real thing. Why do we think that? In, in the church today, how many people have faith in Jesus, they praise Jesus, they worship Jesus, they still have kind of their own agenda for Jesus. Instead of embracing him and his word, they want Jesus to perform for them more than they want to give their lives to Jesus. It's a fickle faith. It's the Palm Sunday kind of faith that Jesus is going to be challenging in our passage this morning. Let me give you this illustration as we walk into this passage. Suppose you knew that you had to go downtown Richmond and on Friday you were to be executed. Suppose that was your week. And today, going downtown Richmond, you got a standing ovation Hmm, think about that. Now you understand Jesus' place. He was going to Jerusalem to go to the cross. That's the context of everything we've been studying the last uh, few weeks. This is not the passage about his coming to Jerusalem, but this explains why they were trying to kill Jesus. It goes more in-depth into the, the reaction 
of the Pharisees and the crowd they were able to inspire than anything in you know, the Palm Sunday and Passion Week. This explains the challenge that Jesus puts before them and their reaction and response to it. So we find in this passage why they were out to kill Jesus. So let's begin to work our way through it. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The NIV translates a Greek word, if you hold. It's the same word as is used in John 15, if you remain in me. Or as the older King James, if you abide in me. To abide, it's, that's the opposite of if you just visit, if you're just here for a while, if you're fickle, if you hold, persevere, remain, abide in me. To my teaching, you are really my disciples. So to this crowd who, who is turning to him, and they're putting their, many are putting their faith in him, he, Jesus is saying, is your faith real or is it fickle? It's real if you persevere in it, if you hold to it. And if you hold to me, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. I remember when I was a teenager and I was really afraid of uh, committing my life to Christ. I was afraid that it would be uh, just the boring life. It's like sitting in church forever. That uh, of just somehow everything that's fun, uh, everything that is... Uh, it's pleasurable, it's, it's good and fun, is a little bit wrong, and that I'd be deprived of all of that. But when I committed my life to Christ, and, and it was all his, there was a fullness of soul, a, a fullness of fellowship, a, a, an understanding. It was like a, a light coming on, not just of intellectual understanding, but a, a spiritual understanding. And it wasn't an emotion. It's hard to explain. It really is hard to explain. But it's the opposite of, of an emptiness or purposelessness or a, 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 a drift feeling or a, a blind feeling. I'm just grasping for whatever I can get meaning in life. I, I can't explain it. But you have to commit to Jesus in a, with real faith. It says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Until I could commit all of my stereotypes, all of my uh, preconceived ideas about what it meant to be a Christian, who I was like, those were all kind of bad. But when I committed to him, I discovered that was not true. Then I knew the truth about Jesus. Then in, instead of being uh, competing with, with others for I'm, I'm a better person and, and trying to prove I want to impress you, I could know the security of he loves me even though he knows my sin. He knows me more than anyone else. He knows my secret thoughts. But he gave his life for me. And I am accepted by God. See, these are the things that are the truth. It's not just philosophical truth. It's the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, right here, the crowd could have, begin to sh could have begun to show genuine faith when they said, oh, Lord, we are yours. Lead us into this truth. They began to react defensively from the start. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. 
How can you say that we shall be set free? There's a tone of indignation in their answer. And they know that it's more than just a political, earthly circumstance. They could never say, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. In the history of Israel, they were slaves to almost everyone. They were slaves in Egypt. The Assyrians had come off and uh, taken off the northern kingdom. They had been in Babylon in exile and back. So just being a, a, a descendant, of, a, a child of Abraham, didn't uh, keep them from uh, being slaves in earthly terms. I think they knew that Jesus was speaking about a spiritual truth. And they were insulted by it. And they were defensive. Well, here's an illustration that I, it's just so, it's all around us all the time. I, you're probably tired of hearing coronavirus all the time on the news. But I couldn't help but think that if, if a doctor came to me, a nurse came and tested me, and the doctor said, your test is positive, I would be cut to the heart. I would say, what should I do? I would be distressed. I would worry for my family. Who else have I come into contact with? but I wouldn't be insulted. It, that's, that's the opposite. I'd accept that it's a true diagnosis. If I said, how dare you say that? How could, how could you say that about me? Yeah, I'm, I'm a child of, of I'm, I'm a, a Presbyterian, and I've never been sick. I'd have to be Pentecostal, I guess, to be that. That kind of, of uh, taking a diagnosis and being insulted it's just kind of foreign when it comes to medical things. You can be distressed. But then we're more like the people in Acts when Peter said to them, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. They were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? What must we do? And Peter said, repent and believe. Well, they were reacting defensively because they were revealing that their faith was fickle faith. It's the same kind of faith that the crowds had on Palm Sunday when they praised Jesus because they'd seen his miraculous signs. But they wanted him to come in and do what they wanted. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, he's leading them into truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He makes clear that he's not talking about a political slavery. He's not talking about nation oppressing nation. He's talking about slavery to sin and they they could have responded and said oh we we know we know that we know our sin what is it you are doing about that they could have been teachable he would have led them into truth and they would have discovered the joy and the glory of his sacrifice for our sins but he's diagnosing them now he says everyone who sins is a slave to sin now a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That idea of having no permanent place in the family relates to them saying, we are Abraham's descendants. It's no new news that just being Abraham's descendant didn't automatically make you one who had faith in God. You had Jacob and then you had Esau who didn't. You had most of the kings of the southern kingdom all of the kings of the northern kingdom were wicked. They worshipped idols. They participated in fertility religions. They turned away from God. Just being a descendant of Abraham didn't make you a son that had 
you know, permanent residence in the household of God. Their lack of faith showed that they were slaves to sin. And being slaves to sin, that's not a, a permanent state in the household. Jesus makes clear that's what he means. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, the crowd could have responded and said, we're not trying to kill you. But they knew that the leaders were trying to kill him. They were offended at Jesus' diagnosis that they were slaves to sin. They didn't go down that road to say, what must we do? They responded defensively, Abraham is our father. It's not just we're his descendants. They realize there's a spiritual claim here. And when they say Abraham is our father, they say we are the people of God. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me. They haven't denied that. They haven't denied that. They may not be realizing their stony hearts yet, but as Jesus challenges them and they refuse to, to uh, receive him, to acknowledge their sin, to embrace him, to have what is saving faith, it brings that stony heart to the point where, wait and see what they try to do at the end of the chapter. Jesus knows what their heart is. So he is very truthfully saying, yet you're trying to kill me. Perhaps even before some of them realize, that's what we do. They're like, no, I'm a nice person. I'm a nice person. As it is, you're determined to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. This perhaps and probably is a dig at Jesus. It's come up before. They may know the rumors about his birth that Mary conceived before she and Joseph were married. And when they were just betrothed, they are in a backhanded way saying, you're the illegitimate child. We're the true children of uh, Abraham. And they know it's spiritual. So here they don't appeal to Abraham. They say, we're children of God. The only father we have is God himself. Then Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. That's the, the verse that I want you to carry with this from, from here on out. I hope you never forget that verse. If you come to things in the Bible, if you come to things in Scripture that are stumbling blocks to you, that just are offenses to you, realize that that reveals more about you than about Jesus. If God were your Father, you would love me. You may go through seasons of life where God really blesses you. You've, you've got the job, you've got the family, you've got the health, you've got everything going right, and you come to church and you praise God for all of his blessings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, and thank you, I've got a good bit of them. That kind of faith can be fickle faith. It can be just like the faith, uh, the, the praise of the Palm Sunday crowd. 
But when push comes to shove, Jesus is saying, if God were your father, you would love me. And if he should take those blessings away, I don't have to spell it out with the threat of what's going around. That's what we're worried about, isn't it? That some of those blessings, perhaps even all of those blessings, could be taken away for us or for some we know. How would you respond to Jesus then? Is your faith fickle faith? This is the real test of faith. I've come from God, and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he who sent me, uh, but he sent me. Why is my language to you uh, not clear? Because you are unable to hear what I say. It's not because Jesus is a bad preacher. He's clear in what he's saying. But the crowd that said they believed in him, who trusted in him, whom he's challenging, whom he's testing, is it genuine faith or is it fickle faith? They're beginning to go like the little kids who don't want to hear it, go, nah, 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 nah. Why is what I'm saying to you not clear? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Oh, this is a test of faith right here. Did anybody respond saying, boy, if anybody talks to me like that, I'd want to kill him too. Did anybody take offense at Jesus? The crowd here sure did. Instead of being cut to the heart and saying, what do you mean? What should I do? This is a very offensive passage if you read it without the kind of faith and trust in Jesus to see where he would lead you. As he is convicting you of sin, if you just go down the defensive route and say, I am not, I am not a sinner. I don't deserve this criticism. I don't deserve for you to say, I'm of my father, the devil, who's, who rebelled against God from the beginning. While you're still rebelling against him. If it's offensive, it's proving the point of what Jesus is saying. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What was his original lie? His being a murderer from the beginning is not that he inspired Cain to kill Abel. That was the next generation, the next step. He knew that God had said, in the day you sin, you will die. And he wanted to bring about that death for Adam and Eve. And he whispered into Eve's ear, God didn't really say that you would die. You shall not die. That was a lie. And he was desiring their spiritual death. That they would be alienated from God. He was a murderer from the beginning. Verse 45, yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. You have to hear this in the tone of a doctor. A doctor who diagnoses correctly. And who says, this is fatal. This is mortal. And the reaction is, how dare you insult me? The doctor begins to plead. It's not that Jesus is, is pleading because he is subject to their authority. It's because he loves them. 
Because he loves them. He wants them to realize their need so that he can lead them to the cross and say, I'm covering it. I'm paying the penalty of it. This is why I came. It's out of my great love for you, even while you were rejecting me. I'm doing this for you to cover your sins. I want you to realize this. It's that kind of pleading. It's authoritative pleading motivated by love, not out of helplessness. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? The Samaritans were uh, alienated from the rest of Israel, and they had their own ideas of where the, the Jews came from and different practices. They had compromised, and they're saying, you're siding with the Samaritans. You're not the true faith, and you're demon-possessed. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus has, has raised the whole conversation beyond just the physical. He's not talking about physical slavery. He's talking about spiritual truth. He's talking about slavery to sin. The wages of sin is death, but he said, if anyone believes in me, who holds to my word, you will never see death. You'll be free indeed. You'll be forgiven of your sins. You don't have to be afraid of physical death. It is life eternal. In John 11, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And he who so lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? We're going to focus on that verse next Sunday on Easter. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, who gives it to us. That's what he means when he says he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and, did so, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. If you are, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, when did Abraham do that? I think this speaks to, to all of Abraham's faith. God called him out of his hometown, said to come out and follow me. Abraham did. He rejoiced in the call of God. When Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, the son that was miraculously given to him when they were old and barren, and they had joy then, Abraham trusted God. Hebrews tells us that Abraham thought that Abraham uh, believed in God who could raise the dead and that after, after he sacrificed Isaac, as he had been miraculously given in the first place, he'd be miraculously given back because God had promised that the whole nation of descendants would come through this son, Isaac. He believed in God. He said, God will provide. There is a joy in the face of horrible circumstances because Abraham believed and trusted God to provide. Jesus is saying Abraham's faith all that time is looking forward in history 
It was in me. He rejoiced to see my day. And they understood that Jesus was claiming the messianic day, the day of the Lord. That was the hope of Israel in all the Old Testament. They longed for God to come and make everything right. God has come and through Christ made everything right in terms of our sin and reconciling us to God. He will come again to make everything right in final judgment when it it will all be be over and and sin will be uh, uh, punished in its final stage and, and righteousness will be established forever and ever. That was the hope of Israel. It was the hope of Abraham. And Abraham rejoiced. But they, instead of dealing with the big claim there, they, reacting to Jesus, thought it was easier just to go into kind of a literal mode again. They said, you are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? They thought, you can't dispute that. You weren't around. How can you claim Abraham rejoiced to see your day? And it's like they stepped in it. They set Jesus up for his biggest claim ever. He's been making this claim all along. This is his clearest expression of it when he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And in the Old Testament, that I am who I am was the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, saying that this is who I am. Nobody defines me. I am the beginning of the source, the definer of everything. I am who I am. Tell Pharaoh, I am sent me. It's the very name of God. And it's been in the passage before, back in verse 33, verse 23 of chapter 8, Jesus said, you're from below, I am from above, you're of this world, I am not of this world, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am, and that should be a period right there, or a comma, the translations fill in something, NIV fills it in, I am the one I claim to be, or others, I am he. Perhaps it's ambiguous here. Perhaps Jesus isn't making that ultimate claim here. If it's ambiguous, it's it's incipient. It's already in the passage. The same in verse uh, 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Translations fill in. I am he, or I am the one I I claim to be. You will know that I am. It's echoes of the name of God. But if it's ambiguous in those verses, it is clear as day here. Before Abraham was, I am. They knew it. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. If they had objected before, who's trying to kill you? Who's trying to kill you? Jesus probed and probed and probed, finally got to the spiritual cancer finally got to the stony heart, put his finger on it, made the ultimate claim. How'd they respond? They proved his point all along. This is his reaction. It's the same with the crowds on Palm Sunday. They praised him. They praised him because of the wonderful things they had seen him do. But they weren't prepared for what Jesus was saying about them. They still were not admitting their sin and their need for a savior. They wanted a political deliverer. They wanted a king that could bless them with all sorts of good things. It's the ancient version of the modern health and wealth gospel. That's what they wanted Jesus for. 
And when he became unpopular and the leaders seemed to win the day, the crowd shifted and joined the Pharisees to say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How do you respond? This is a test of, of your faith. If you're just investigating these things, if you're just listening and learning, this is not, a, this is not bad news. There's good news that Jesus has here. He's doing this out of love because he knows our problem. And he came to take the consequence of our sin on himself for our sake that we can be freed from it. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when you're free like this, you don't have to be afraid of the circumstances that come up and down in this life. We have a security that can't be taken away, a joy that we can praise God for even when we are grieving over uh, the, uh, the losses uh, and, and the hurts and the pains of this physical world. Jesus wept coming to Jerusalem because of the sins of the people. He cared more about them than about himself, about what they were going to do for him. He's doing this all out of love. If you're looking at this and you're reacting against it, ask yourself how much are you like the crowd that Jesus is addressing? Do you really want to be on their side? Or do you want to put your faith and trust in the one who came to save? The one who came to pay for your sin. The one who would reconcile you to God. If you're afraid that the Christian life then is just a bunch of, of uh, uh, boring religious outward stuff and restraint from everything that is fun, if you're just afraid, that's Satan whispering, whispering in your ear, you don't want this, you don't want this. But when you receive him and commit to him, wow, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Peter pro proves, as we'll, on Thursday night with our uh, Passover communion service, which, by the way, we will celebrate communion without actually partaking of it. We, I think there's something about gathering together to partake of the Lord's uh, Supper, and we can't do that yet. But as we go through the elements and the explanations of it, we can have a longing for the time that we gather together here on earth which can reflect the longing we'll have together to be gathered together with the Lord in the end. We can celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, and, and long for when we can partake of it together. Now, if this extends longer than that, we're going to have to figure out ways because we don't want to, to ne neglect it too long. But let it right now feed our longing. But when we look at these passages, we're going to find that Peter himself faltered. When Jesus went to the cross, Peter disowned. Jesus. Just because you falter doesn't mean you're not really a believer or follower of Christ. It's not that kind of ultimate uh, test. But Jesus restored Peter to himself and said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter, after he was so humbled, said, Lord, you know I love you. In this passage, Jesus says, if God's really your father, you would love me. It's not your love for Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus himself who gave himself for you. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is the bad news side of the good news gospel that we first have to admit our need for such a savior. 
We thank you that Jesus came and convicted us of our sin. He exposes it, lays it right out in the open. We see the crowd's response. Father, I pray that as we are convicted of our sin, we would be led to the cross and discover your love and grace shed, manifest for us there as Jesus shed his own blood and sacrificed his own body and bore the wrath of God stored up for our sin upon himself. And then after swallowing it whole, he broke its power by rising from the dead. Thank you that we can celebrate that even when we cannot get together this next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.